Let's uh, pray together as we open God's Word. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty because, Lord, you made and own everything in heaven and on earth. Whatever power goes forth from this pulpit today, Lord, is your power, not mine. You are the one who will do ministry amongst us by your word and by your spirit. And so, Lord, we come under the authority of your word. And as sinners who are recovering by your grace, we pray, Lord, that we would have listening ears this morning, that your spirit would encourage us and prod us in the ways that you would have. And Father, that we would not go unchanged into our jobs and our families and our school settings, wherever we're going this week, Lord, but that you would transform us further even now by word and spirit as we come under your authority. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This past holiday Monday, uh, my daughter Autumn and I took a walk through parts of the beautiful Mount Royal Cemetery. Now, longtime Montrealers, I'm sure you've been up there, <laughs> um, but if you haven't, I would encourage you to, uh, it's a great place to reflect and pray and uh, really a beautiful setting. But one of the thousands, and there are thousands, one of the thousands of people laid to rest up there is John Francis Young. Young was a Canadian soldier born in Britain, Canadian soldier in World War I. He was a stretcher bearer on the battlefields of France, and he ended up receiving the Victoria Cross, pictured there, which is the highest award for valor, and bravery that there is. And his story goes like this. On the 2nd of September 1918, when the German army had been offering up a particularly heavy resistance of machine gun fire on the advancing Canadians, Young crawled out onto the battlefield with bullets whizzing all around him to do what? To carry dressings and to carry other medical supplies to the wounded soldiers. He then helped those soldiers where they lay, even going back to the field station more than once to grab additional supplies before crawling out onto the battlefield again with precious little cover. And in the process of all of that, he also breathed in some mustard gas that had been floating over from the German side. Young's heroic rescue efforts went on for over an hour. And then late in the day, when the machine gun fire had subsided somewhat, he went back out yet again with teams that he had organized personally, teams of stretcher bearers, to fetch all of those wounded soldiers that he had helped earlier and bring them to safety. Again, for his fearlessness, 
And for his bravery, John Francis Young earned the Victoria Cross, one of only a handful of Canadians in World War I, to be awarded that very prestigious medal. Well, my friends, there is a definite heroic aspect to what the Apostle Paul says next in the letter to the Colossians. Paul had been like a fearless stretcher bearer, struggling, suffering, in order to bring to lost Gentiles the most needful medicine that there is, which is Jesus Christ and his gospel. I want you to listen to what Paul says next in our journey through Colossians in the first verse of chapter 2. Paul says, again, he's writing from a prison cell. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, the English word struggle here is translated from the original Greek agon, which is related, of course, to our English word agony. Paul wants the Colossians to know how much he agonizes for them. We ask the question, though, why exactly does Paul want them to know about his struggle? Is, is, is this Paul being self-serving here? Is Paul just after some sympathy from the Colossians as they notice how much he struggles in his gospel efforts? Is, is what Paul says here about Paul? Is he seeking their admiration here? Look at me, how much I struggle for you. Doesn't that cause you to want to admire me? Well, it's none of those things. I think the key words here in the verse are those words, for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. The, the hero that we just talked about moments ago, John Francis Young, he was fearlessly and resolutely focused on helping others. He risked his life going out under heavy machine gun fire to dress the wounds of others and carry those people off the battlefield. And likewise, the Apostle Paul, who has already mentioned in this letter a real danger, the danger that the Colossians might shift from the gospel, Paul is resolutely focused on the doctrinal safety and spiritual well-being of the Colossians. Paul's agony, his struggle, is for their spiritual health, their sustenance. Paul doesn't seek any sympathy or admiration here for himself. Instead, he wants, to, he wants the Colossians to know how crucial it is, how crucial it is, that they receive the gospel truth. Hence, his struggle on their behalf. The struggle is for them. It's an others-centered struggle. What a great 
paradigm for Christian ministry. And here's something very interesting, friends. Wonderful, actually. As we read the tail end of this verse where Paul mentions, notice there, that his struggle is for all who have not seen me face to face, we can include ourselves in that number. So there is a definite sense in which Paul's struggle to get the gospel to the Gentiles in the first century was a struggle for us who live in the 21st century. John Woodhouse puts it like this, quote, we are the beneficiaries, we are the beneficiaries of the struggle that Paul speaks of here. As we read this letter, we are the very direct beneficiaries of his strenuous efforts to see Christ known in the nation. So as Gentiles who have been adopted into God's family centuries after Paul, we say, thank you, Paul. Well, in the next verse then, Paul gives us what really is the goal of his whole struggle. What was Paul trying to accomplish as he agonized in his gospel efforts. He says of this whole large group of people that he's just mentioned there in verse one, which included the Colossians, he says, I struggle in this way that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So as Paul noticed this, as he labored, as he struggled, both in person before his imprisonment, and now in letter, as he struggled and agonized to proclaim Jesus Christ, to show from the Old Testament that Jesus is indeed the Christ, as he labored to spread the gospel, his goal, notice, was not to entertain people or simply to satisfy their intellectual curiosities. Paul's goal, right here in the text, was to encourage hearts. That is to bring courage, to bring strength, to bring comfort to the very center of persons, the heart. To bring strength and courage and comfort to people's volitional, emotional, and intellectual lives. Lives that were knit together, knit together with other Christians in love, so that together these people would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It was to attain this noble and God-honoring goal that Paul agonized, that he struggled My friends, the gospel minister who is worth his salt looks over a congregation made up of believers who share a common salvation 
who share a common baptism, who share a common spirit, who share a common meal. He looks over these hearts that are knit together in love, and the gospel minister's aim is to bring strength, encouragement, comfort, conviction, edification to those hearts by the ministry of word and spirit. And the gospel minister struggles, agonizes over people with the desire that they not be indecisive, that they not be indecisive in spiritual matters, but that they would have what Paul calls full assurance, certainty, that they would have an assurance, a certainty that is derived from an understanding of the written word of God together with a knowledge of the incarnate word of God, Christ Jesus, who is God's Daniel 2 mystery, who has now been revealed. And speaking of Christ, we love to speak of Jesus Christ here at Snowden. <laughs> speaking of Christ, many, many centuries before Christ came into this world, incarnate in the flesh, many centuries before, the man Job had wondered out loud about the source and the location of wisdom. Job had voiced the question in Job 28, 20, and 21, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Well, friends, it's like Paul answers Job's questions in the next verse of Colossians. Paul declares now in verse 3 that in Christ, I want you to hear this well, this is directly applicable to your week this week. In Christ are hidden how many treasures? How many treasures are left out? None. All in this person, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Paul uses that word hidden there, he doesn't mean hidden in the sense of concealed in secret. Rather, by hidden, Paul means safely stored up or safely deposited. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are safely stored up, deposited in Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is worth pausing over for a few reasons. I hope that's okay. First of all, it's very clear in this verse that, that Paul is once again, as he often does, he's drawing from the wells of his Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, and specifically from the second chapter of Proverbs. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you like. 
So in Proverbs chapter 2, what's happening there is a father is beckoning, beckoning his son to go to assertively search out wisdom and insight and understanding. In the same way that a person would search out hidden treasures, says this father in verse 4, so his son is to search out wisdom, insight, knowledge, and understanding. And in the Greek version of Proverbs 2 that Paul would have had at his fingertips and memorized large portions of, in the Greek version of Proverbs 2, we have many of the same Greek words that Paul reuses in Colossians 2 verse 3. Words translated into English as wisdom, understanding or knowledge, treasure, and hidden. Paul uses this terminology from Proverbs chapter 2. He is alluding to Proverbs 2 as he writes Colossians 2.3. Now in Proverbs 2.6, it says that the Lord, Yahweh, gives wisdom. In other words, in your search for wisdom, go no further than the source of wisdom, which is Yahweh. And then Paul comes along here in Colossians 2, and notice this, he tells us that Christ, the Son of God, is where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. Isn't this interesting? If you are a person, my friend, who is searching for wisdom and knowledge, go no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Because all wisdom and knowledge is safely stored up and is found in him. So are you a person, I'm asking, who is in need of wisdom for something, in need of knowledge for something this week? What do you do? You fly to the person of Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus. You go to him in prayer. And you seek from the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. Would you do that? I'm asking you to make a promise to me. Yes. yes. Good. Has to be a little bit of dialogue in preaching. <laughs> now going even further, we can go deeper here. So in Paul's day, already there was a long tradition that had developed within Judaism that claimed that if you were seeking the very height of wisdom, if you were looking for the very epitome of wisdom, then you went no further than the law of God, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jewish people of Paul's day understood the Torah to be the apogee, the, the very height, the whole enchilada of wisdom. And so this text becomes radical here. In a very daring and radical way, Paul, remember that Paul had been raised as a law-loving Pharisee. Paul says here, makes this audacious claim in our verse, that in fact, 
Christ Jesus is the height, the epitome of wisdom, what Beale and Glad call the grandest expression of wisdom. It's this person, Jesus Christ, who is the place where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found. So we might put it like this then, friends, that for Paul, it's like the Old Testament Torah was a type of Christ. Christ being the antitype. Or, if you don't like that academic language, the Torah, the law of God, was like the old black and white tube TV. The law was the precursor to Christ Jesus, who is the highest resolution, crisp, technicolor, 80-inch flat screen when it comes to wisdom and knowledge. Dennis Johnson has called Jesus, and I like this, the wisdom of God in flesh and blood. Yes. We look no further for wisdom and knowledge. We look to the risen Christ because in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God. King Solomon may have been internationally renowned, and he was for his great wisdom, but King Jesus with super self-awareness, comes along and he says in Matthew 12, 42, that he's greater than Solomon. Something greater than Solomon is here, and his name is Jesus. Now, my friends, the tragedy of the contemporary worldly mind is its propensity to push Christ away, to rule God out, to put an end altogether to religion of any sort, if it can, to be absolutely Christless and godless. And where successful, then we're left with a situation where the human mind becomes its own limit. In a situation of worldly godlessness, we have a situation where the human mind is left to reach no higher than itself because it can't reach higher than itself, having ruled God out of court. And it's then a situation where human reasoning, human smarts, Human strategies, human ingenuity are the rather pathetic height of wisdom. Well, it's right here where the church, are you part of Jesus Christ's church? If so, raise your hand. Yes. It's right here where the church is so vitally, radically important in this world. It's the church in union with, we've talked about that, in union with the crucified and risen Jesus. It's the church that has access, yes, to the inexhaustible storehouse of divine wisdom and knowledge that is located where? In Christ. 
And to put it mildly, my friends, his divine wisdom and his knowledge so far exceeds any so-called human wisdom that it's not even a contest. And oh, how this world needs the mind of the all-wise, all-knowing Jesus Christ. As his church, I think it behooves us to be praying for increased wisdom and knowledge from our king that we then employ and deploy for the sake of a fractured and lost world. Stretcher bearers who go out and bring the medicine of Christ's wisdom and knowledge to bear in a dying age. Well, let's go to verse 4 then. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, the first question we have to sort out here is, what does the word this refer to? I say this. Well, more than likely, as I've looked at this, and with the help of some biblical scholars, the word this more than likely refers backwards to what he's just said in the past several verses where he has talked about Christ being the center of the mystery that started way back in Daniel chapter 2. I say this, I say what I've just said in the past several verses about the mystery who is Christ, Christ in you, Christ the one with all wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one may delude you in the church with plausible arguments. Again, friends, notice how Paul is like that stretcher bearer. He is striving, struggling for the sake of others, yes? He's concerned for the Colossians. He doesn't want these believers in Jesus Christ to be led down the garden path, so to speak. He doesn't want them to be deluded, to be deceived, to be misled, to be beguiled, by what he calls plausible arguments. That phrase, plausible arguments, comes from just a single Greek word in the original text that has to do with persuasiveness. And so in the New American Standard Bible, they've translated it as persuasive argument. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. The NIV translates this Greek word as fine-sounding arguments. Boy, that sounds so good, right? Fine-sounding arguments. The King James Version has enticing words. The Revised Standard Version has beguiling speech, beguiling Speech. So Paul struggles, he strives on behalf of the Colossians that they not come under the spell of plausible arguments, fine-sounding speech, persuasive, enticing words that would lead them astray from the truth of Jesus. What does he want? He wants them anchored unbudgingly to the gospel, 
to the revealed truth of Jesus Christ, the knowledge, the wisdom that are found in him. Now, I've lived 53 years, which isn't terribly long, but over my five decades of life, I've I've had the opportunity on more than one occasion, maybe you have too, to hear persuasive-sounding talks, enticing words, right-sounding arguments, bewitching speeches, having to do with spirituality and God. But they don't have anything to do with the truth of the gospel. And in some cases, those fine-sounding words and speeches are very clearly opposed to the gospel. You know, a powerful orator can come around and make something sound so good so true, so reasonable, so alluring. But in reality, that something that is coming out of his or her mouth may be antithetical, absolutely the opposite to the truth of Jesus. But it sounds so good. He said it so powerfully and so persuasively. Paul is like our stretcher bearer who's out there on the field struggling and striving through the hail of bullets on behalf of the Colossians, desiring that they not be fooled, that they not be enticed by arguments and ideas that lead them away from the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul is there saying to these believers, in essence, he's saying to them, shouting to them, look, here is Jesus Christ. Here is the treasure store of all wisdom and all knowledge. Turn the eyes of your hearts adamantly on him. Feed on him exclusively. Go to him. Draw your everything from the vine. Now, there is evidence to suggest that the Colossian Christians were being exposed to false teachers who were combining, combining, listen, Jewish teachings with a measure of Greek philosophy. And these new Christians in the Colossian church, most of whom were Gentiles, remember, they had been reared in an atmosphere of heavy Greek philosophy. And so they would be attracted to this kind of teaching. A little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Greek philosophy, syncretized and mixed together. Let's come to 2023, where we live. There is a philosophy of the times that is floating around heavy in the air, that has a definite religious flavor about it. But when you run the diagnostics, you find out pretty quickly that in essence, it is an antichrist philosophy from top to bottom. 
And this contemporary philosophy involves a whole constellation of ideas that we won't get into this morning, but it is out of step with God. And I will continue to pray as long as I'm here as your pastor that as a church, we will not be deceived, we will not be allured by beguiling arguments, enticing ideas that lead us away and astray from the truth that is exclusive in Jesus Christ. May we continue to open ourselves to receive more and more and more of his wisdom and knowledge. Amen? Paul ends this section then in verse 5 as he says to the Colossians, This is beautiful. For though I am absent in body, there in the prison in Rome, far away from them, yet I am with you in spirit. Now get the picture here. The Colossians are gathered there in the presence of the Holy Spirit to listen to Paul's letter as it is read to them. And Paul considered himself to be there with them in and by the same Holy Spirit who unified them all together. And Paul says, I am what? Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So notice this, my friends. The struggle of the stretcher bearer had paid dividends. Paul's suffering on behalf of these Christians had produced fruit. There was a good order amongst the Colossians. Greg Beale has argued that probably this was good doctrinal order, which in turn was connected directly to the firmness of their faith in Christ that he mentions here. So so doctrinal order is connected to firmness in faith, while doctrinal disorder, false teaching, error, That's connected to weakness in faith, instability in faith. Okay, so this morning, we've talked about the stretcher bearer struggling to reach others who were wounded on the field, risking his life to bring them dressings and medicine. And we link that to the Apostle Paul struggling and suffering for the sake of bringing others the truth of Christ and his gospel. What we've noticed in this section is that Paul has talked about his rejoicing, it's remarkable, his joy in the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of his sufferings, for their sake. In 124, he had said, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in 2.5, he said, even though he couldn't be with them physically because of his imprisonment for the gospel, he said, I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What's the point? The point is that for Paul, the struggle the agony, the sufferings that he experienced as he spread the gospel were not, listen, were not a grudging sacrifice. They were a joy. 
David Livingston was a 19th century missionary who spent 30 years of his life working across the entire continent of Africa, spreading the gospel, working against the slave trade, and doing scientific work in an effort to identify and treat tropical diseases. In his gospel efforts, Livingston experienced many, many trials, many hardships, lots of suffering, including fevers, cholera, ulcers. He hit a branch with his eye and was blind in that eye from that point forward. A lion attack. Interpersonal disagreements and conflicts with other missionaries. A lack of money, the death of a child, the death of his wife. And at one point, he also witnessed a absolutely horrific massacre of hundreds of African people in a market. In 1857, when he was briefly back in on the continent of Europe, he gave an address to students at Cambridge University and I want to read you just part of that address. He said this, quote, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice in such a view, he says, and away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, along with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But, says Livingston, let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. And then he closed that section by saying, I never made a sacrifice. You see, my friends, for Livingston and for Paul before him, and most importantly, for Jesus Christ our Lord, the blessings of getting the gospel out outweighed the losses 
the fruit of seeing others come to Christ, outweighed the suffering. The joy of the whole enterprise outweighed whatever heartache there was in the process. Think on these things this week as you struggle and strive to spread the fame of Jesus Christ in your corner of the world, whether in your extended family or in your workplace or at school or on the streets of Montreal, wherever you are. Think on these things. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, when we consider the extravagant lengths that you have gone to in your love for the world to send your willing son that he would be nailed to a cross, tortured there, dying there for our salvation, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. Lord, we can't look at our own ministry and say, oh, it's so such a sacrifice. Lord, help us this week by your Holy Spirit to grant us the rejoicing and the joy in the midst of the struggle, the midst of the agony that we so desperately need. We are weak and you are strong, Lord. Come amongst us, do your work through us, and may we rejoice because of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.